Uh, we're diving in, obviously, into the book of Numbers. Last week, we did the overview, and I handed out to you that, that kind of map done by Bible Project, and I don't know where more are, but I can get more. Uh, so I will definitely get some more. If we need them, print them off. And so that, that map, I'm not saying that everything on it is exactly how I would necessarily break it down. I don't know uh, 100% where they do it. It wasn't exactly for me in Leviticus. However, it gives you a great movement through the book, and it's really helpful as you're looking at numbers <coughs> to be walking the movement that's in front of you because you want to see where we're going. And so I'm going to start off reading the first verse of Numbers, and I do want us to note something, and I'm going to mention again how it starts. Don't miss that phrase because that phrase is repeated a lot, and we kind of get numb to that phrase where we should be doing the reverse when we see that phrase. So I'm going to begin uh, Numbers chapter 1, verse 1. And the Lord spake unto Moses in the wilderness of Sinai, in the tabernacle of the congregation, on the first day of the second month in the second year, after they were come out of the land of Egypt. So I want us to see something. When we start Numbers, it's right where we left off in Leviticus. Leviticus is taking place at Mount Sinai. We're dealing with one month of time that's taking place. And when Numbers picks up the narrative, and in Leviticus, and we're going to actually repeat in these first four chapters, we actually repeat the narrative that takes place in Leviticus. The narrative in Leviticus is that Nabad and a Bayou, I'm going to probably mispronounce them. This is what I do. Um, they die because they offer unauthorized fire. We're going to actually see that repeated again. But from that narrative, we're moving. We're at the same Mount Sinai. We're just having finished the one month that was there. And now we're diving in to numbers. And I wanted you to notice the first thing that was said. The Lord spake unto Moses. And I want you, if you highlight in your Bible, underline that. And as you're reading through... Numbers, highlight it every time you see it. I just went through and marked it quickly, and I'm going to have missed some. But if you look at Numbers 1-1, and the Lord spake. If you go to Numbers 2-1, and the Lord spake unto Moses. If you go to Numbers 3-5, and the Lord spake unto Moses. And you kind of work your way through to Numbers 3-14, and the Lord spake unto Moses. And I'm sure I'm going to miss some. 44, and the Lord spake unto Moses. Chapter 4, and the Lord spake unto Moses. I want us to see something that's important. When you see a phrase that's repeated in Scripture over and over again, we tend to numb ourselves to it, unless it's repeated immediately right afterwards, like this is a big deal. But it's a big deal. When you read through the Pentateuch, you see oftentimes this phrase repeated, and we take it for granted, and we miss the magnitude of it. So let me just slow it down. The Lord talked directly with Moses. Every time you see that, I want you to see a conversation taking place. And anytime Scripture repeats something, it's done for emphasis. It's done to make sure we get it. I've said this a thousand times. I'm sure I'll say it a thousand times again when we talk about studying Scripture. And the goal is that as, as believers, we dive into God's Word and we understand what it's saying. We, we get what's taking place, and anytime you see something repeated, if you ever read, if you ever want to uh, further your studies on how to read Scripture and how to, how to study Scripture, Living by the Book by Howard Hendricks is an amazing help or tool. And in that book, things that are emphasized, things that are repeated, and this is something that is both emphasized 
and repeated. <laughs> and so I say that because what we're about to do in the next four chapters is where Numbers gets its Greek and English and Latin and every other language name. Why is it called Numbers? Because we're about to talk about Numbers. If you have your little map and they drew that little thing and they have that squiggly scroll and they've scribbled numbers you can't tell because they try to write them in Hebrew, which they did, and they, they did. That's where we're at. That's where we are today. We are at the numbers. We are at what most people would say, huh, that seems boring. But I want us to jump up a second and realize what happened. The Lord spake unto Moses. And then I have a, a question. And so I'm going to ask a few questions tonight. And I want you to feel free to answer uh, if you get them wrong, no big deal. Everyone gets answers wrong, so give it your best shot. But this is, I always list them as discussion questions because I understand maybe we don't have something to throw out. <laughs> if we know now, or since we know now, that this is a phrase that is constantly repeated, then does it bear weight now as we begin looking at the numbers of numbers? Does it have an implication for the instructions that follow this first one? Is there any weight that we put behind reading, and the Lord spake unto Moses? So this is not Moses' idea. And that's a point we want to get clear to us. Oftentimes, we look at a census, and what do you think? When I hear census, I hear what? Government. That's exactly what I hear. I see guy pulling up in the driveway asking me questions about how many people live in the house. And if I would have been quick enough, which I wasn't, I would have said, I think there's like 20 illegal people and there's a few, you know, but I didn't. I didn't do that. I didn't have enough gumption at that moment. I, I'm pretty sure I got the count wrong. I was a teenager when it happened. Pulled up. I'm like, I don't know. Are you going to arrest us? You know, that's the, the implication. My dad's an immigrant. Take him. We're safe. You know, that kind of thing. Because um, we'll throw someone in front of the, you know. Better to stay and let him go, right? He can come back later. Um, he only has to swim in ocean. But all I have to say is census, we think government, right? What do you think? Yeah, we got this idea of people number, people take a census, and it's, it's shifting, and they want to understand what's taking place. Uh, when David did a census, was that in God's will? No, and, and Israel faced an immense amount of punishment from that. Don't lose sight of that. We get to a census, and I, I, well, let me rephrase this. I know my disposition. My disposition wanders into, oh boy, an Issachar and a bunch of names I can't pronounce get numbered, and these guys help. And sometimes it's helpful just to, one, enjoy pronouncing or mispronouncing the names, but two, recognizing who called this up and thinking through Scripture and saying, wait a second, God doesn't always want the people numbered. That this numbering served God's purpose. Now, when David numbered the people, when he's king, whose purpose did that serve? David's. And what purpose was it? What was he wanting to prove to himself? Yeah, how powerful he was. But there's something drastically different as we launch into numbers here. And the idea is this, and I wrote this. This is not... Moses' idea that God gives the green light to, which is how we like to approach ministry, well, I have a great idea. I think I'll make sure God rubber stamps that, and then we'll move forward with this great idea of mine that God, the Almighty, has rubber stamped because that's how God works, like a bureaucrat stamping and saying everything's okay because that's our mindset. Here we have Moses 
God's servant, and God is speaking to him in the tabernacle saying, go number the people. And so God talks directly to Moses, and it all unfolds first day of the second month of the second year. That is roughly May on the Gregorian calendar. Our calendar, that's roughly going to fall around May. And what we find is that God, speaking directly to Moses, gives him a job to do. And I'll read two through four. I mentioned this last week. Uh, When we walk through numbers, I won't necessarily be reading every verse we're going through. I'm really hoping that you'll take a diligent approach to this and dive in. I still want to encourage you to read numbers through uh, in in a one-block sitting or over an evening night. I know, Carl, you finished it, correct? So talk to Carl about... How good that was. He said it was very helpful, dynamic. It's a very interesting story. So I just throw somebody out as the challenge to, you got to match Carl. You can't let Carl be at the head of the class. That just would be ridiculous, you know. Uh, So you're challenging people to ride 18 miles and read numbers? Wow. It took me a couple hours on my couch seat to read numbers and I think that's that's more difficult it really is to sit in the couch sucking down tea I lost count of how many cups of tea Leviticus was three cups of tea for me numbers I drink a lot of cups of tea I can't quite remember I want to challenge you try to get through numbers see this whole picture but again we talk about reading one through four I'm going to read a few of the verses what are we doing here he says take ye the sum of all the congregation of the children of Israel after their families by the house of their fathers with the number of their names, every male by their poles. And I want you to realize something. Numbers records for us totals and who counted. But recognize, just like Logan had said, this involved a lot more than just a count. This wasn't one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. This was breaking it up by clans and families. This was understanding who the people were. So God was not just looking for a total what is recorded for us in numbers is a total what God says to do and what they would have done is by the clans by the families we're going to break out into this nation and we're going to understand who and where and how they are connected and it says there from 20 years old and upward and this is a key phrase all that are able to go forth to war in Israel thou and Aaron shall number them by their armies And with you there shall be a man of every tribe, every one head of the house of his fathers. And I want you to recognize that God is numbering them for a purpose. And one of those purposes, that main driving purpose, which he tells you, and this is again something as we study scripture, why did God want them numbered? He wants them to know, because God already knows, who is able to go forth to war in Israel. And I put down here, God wants them prepared to move to take possession of the promised land, something that would require a struggle, so they count on or count in or do this count for preparation for war. And that's critical because it's the opposite, or not opposite, it's different for the Levites. God is numbering Israel in numbers because the goal is, from the offset of the book, the immediate point, is for them to enter the promised land, for them to go into battle, for them to beat the Canaanites. God is showing them what his purpose is, driving them forward. Now, numbers encompasses a ridiculous number of years. I think, what is it, Exodus is a year and a half, Leviticus is one month, and then numbers is 38 and a half years. 
and it stretches out because of disobedience. But on the offset, we know, numbers one, what is God's purpose? Prepare them for war. And war was them taking the promised land, and those words tell it all, right? The land that God had promised them, he is showing them that they're prepared to enter, and he is having everyone kind of dive in. I say we love to overlook these counts, but they're an important part of what God is doing, and in them we see what God has accomplished, and we'll look at that even further down. Moses is instructed to use a delegation here. Now, Moses, one of the things you could look at his leadership, one of his weaknesses that God corrects some of you is the idea of doing it all himself. And God, from the offset, says, pick someone who's the head of a household, leader in their tribe, and make sure they're helping you divide by clans and, and everything else. If you go into someone else's family reunion, how do you separate people up? It's nearly impossible, right? I always do this. You ever been to a wedding? We have way too many family members, and then the photographer's trying to wrangle this group of animals that you're related to. And you're chuckling because you think this is like, we're like, ah, this is funny. Good luck, lady. Ah, it's never going to happen in a million years, right? I know with my family, it didn't. They're very difficult. The outside, my mom's side of the family. My dad's side's easy. My mom's terrible. It's, here's the reality, right? You walk into a strange group of people you don't know. God, I want you to see again God's wisdom, God's precision. Who's going to do the best job of getting them by clans and by families and getting the right count and making sure, hey, did you forget about that person there? This person's wandering in the corner. They're going to make sure they have everyone. So God has Moses delegating to a leader in every tribe to count their people by tribe, by clan, by family. We're breaking it down into all the different units that would be there. And, and interestingly enough, as you read these names in Hebrew, not every one of them, but the majority of them, have a connection with the word El, which is the word for God, not Jehovah in that sense, but El was El Shaddai, right? Those names all have El in front of it. The El is God. And, and interestingly enough, a lot of these leaders had a connection to God in their name, and it was not them trying to take God-like status, but instead showing their devotion and connection to the true God. And so what you watch is God say, delegate to leaders in each tribe. The leaders in each tribe were men that even from birth or most likely adopted into their character, a part of their name added on the L to show that they were devoted to God. And so what you see is that the correct leader, a godly leader from each tribe is brought up and then mentored by Moses and Aaron, and they provide the needed help to get an accurate count. And I want us to again see what God is doing. So in the process of coming to account, God is developing leadership. Who is God using in leadership? Well, we find it's guys that have a connection in their name to God so that we understand what their devotion and connection is. They make sure that even in what they're called shows that their focus is the true God. Now, you go through verses 20 uh, through 43, and you're going to get all the counts listed there, 17 through 19, and we can look at those verses just to see what takes place. Uh, 17 says this, And Moses and Aaron took these men, which are expressed by their names. There's a reason for that. These people, these individuals, these specific leaders, these devoted to God men came together, and they assembled all the congregation together on the first day of the second month, and they declared their pedigrees after their families by the house of their fathers according to the number of the names from 20 years old and upward by their poles. And you're reminded again that this is not just a one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight count. This is a 
understanding the demographic of their nation by families, completely broken down. And then it says, and the Lord commanded Moses, so he numbered them in the wilderness of Sinai. In other words, God did it and Moses accomplished it. And what I want you to see here, just as a caveat to, to tie it in, God said to do it and Moses did. So you see God's command, but you see Moses' obedience. And that's important to see. In Numbers, we encounter one of the grave disappointments in Moses' life, and that's disobedience to God, the failure to honor God, to which he pays dearly. He doesn't get to enter the promised land. But we watch his character build, and we still see him obeying God. So now we look, 20 through 43 is the count of all the tribes, except Levi, which is critical, who are ready to go to war, to fight, and I want you to take notice of who is numbered, 20-year-old and upward. If you look at the ESV, it says every male. If you look at KJV, it says 20 years old and upward, and then the next word is all. So if every male or all 20-year-old and upward who can fight are numbered, how many people are expected to go to war in Israel? But who's numbered? There's a totality there. And I want you to think about it. How do we go to war? Adults go, but not, not every adult goes, right? Even when we draft, not everyone goes. Not everyone ends up at war. And I want you to see something, and this is a, a critical thing. Who's going to war? Everyone. If you're able to hold a sword and you're 20 years old or upward, you're going to war. That means if you're in your 60s and you can still sling a blade, you're doing what? You're going to war. You're counted. You're a part of this. There's no exception clause. Everyone who is at the eligible age and who's capable of fighting would go. And I put here... What about that grabs your attention? And I just kind of listed. How, how is it different than today's battles? Or, or actually, almost any battles in the history. Everyone's a part of this. Every single one. If you're the only 68-year-old slinging a sword, you start looking around saying, what am I doing here? But if every other tribe, right, is there represented, you think, hey, we're here to do this. This is an all-in venture. Uh, I'm not using this uh, to turn around and say, hey, our military should be all in. You know, so every one of us should go. If we can shoot a gun, we should be in the military. That's not the idea here, but I want you to see in a theocracy and what God was doing with his people. He pulled them out of Egypt. And he has them positioned here, and this is a movement that's supposed to be go from Mount Sinai, if we get the law, right into the promised land. The idea is to enter the promised land, to take it over. And I want you to understand that everyone was to be vested in this. It's not like the Levites on this one. Their, 20, their 30 to 50-year-olds are put into service, specifically handling the articles of the tabernacle. Everyone from 20 above that could fight is an interesting thing. Everyone that's numbered here, how many of them make it into the promised land of this number? Two. Isn't that shocking? This number 
Only two. If you get the count in Numbers 26, it's a difference of 2,000. It's 601,000. I think this is 603. God had replaced the force again. Now the numbers in the tribe had shifted, and disobedience had kept the population down, uh, their own disobedience. But realize what you see here. I put here, how could you apply this to today? How does the everyone is serving who can sling a blade tie into today? How does that, why does that matter to you and I? Why would it matter? How do we, and we talk about the idea of street level. So how does that work and function in our today life right now? Yeah. We, we, but let's, let's flip it around. How many people in a church should serve? Right, but who should? Everyone. I read about a church, and it's, uh, it's a church in Florida, and I, I've read articles by this pastor, and he's very well-known, a very decent-sized church. And I'm not saying that I would do this, but in his church, if you don't serve for six months, they kick you out of membership. Wow. Then you know who's serving. <laughs> I think they still take the tithe, but it is don't let you have membership. So I think something like that, how they work. I don't know how they, that's what I said. And that's how I would approach this. It's a different view of membership, the ties in there. But doesn't that, doesn't that hit like, well, yeah, I don't want to do this. What, what happens to two and a half tribes on the other side of the Jordan? They say, hey, we like this land. What was the big, big pushback that came into that? You're going to war. You're, you're, you're going to fight. You have to be a part of this. And I want you to, to look in numbers, what grabs your attention. Everyone is going into war. And it didn't hit me until today <coughs> when I'm reading through it again, and I'm thinking, wait a second. That's just not the best at war. These aren't the guys that signed up for war. This isn't judges where, do you want to fight, and there's 32,000 and 22,000 sent away. This isn't like normal war. This is not Jephthah. This is not going to be Samuel. This is not going to be King Saul who could draft people <coughs> forced in as he comes in. But this is the expectation God had for his people. Go to war. It tells you every battle is going to be a miracle, right? Taking everyone that can somewhat sling a blade going in there and we see the miraculous nature that, that unfolds. But to us, it tells us, hey, everyone is a part of this. So God has counted everyone for war. And everyone's going to serve. Now, when we look at the number, it's 603,550 men, 20 on up. So most estimates say that with that count, we're at the 2 million mark of people. Now, through the years, right? So, and I want to I make sure I put everything out there. So numbering in Hebrew is interesting because it's by the alphabet. And so they say it's tricky or it's difficult. And so we start with this idea that it's not as easy, so to speak, as it is in other languages. From there, we a higher criticism kind of weaves its way in, thinking to try to, I always say, in some ways undermine Scripture. That's what their goal is in the end, how to nibble away. And so they developed this idea that 603,550 men was, was typifying. It was a symbolic thing. It wasn't a real number. And sadly, I would say a, a decent number of conservative scholars some of them bought into this. Some of the best guys on the Old Testament lean this way, though you can see in their writing that they know they really shouldn't, but they can't help themselves because academics pulls them in like a magnet. And, and here's what's interesting, and I want to kind of, 
Uh, you may not encounter this, but I want to make sure you realize people would say that. So they would look at the 603 and they would say it was 6,000. Where it's 45 clans and 500 people, not 43,500 people. And I want to share this again about Scripture. Uh, scripture has symbolic language, but it tells you. When Scripture gives you a number, it means it. So some of their pushback is uh, this. One of them I, I find fascinating. The region could not support that many people. What do we know about the support of the people? <laughs> Daily miracle. Manna. All right, check one. Two, they say, nowadays there's not that many people in that region. So there never could have been that many people in that region. Don't you love that reasoning? Three is, we don't find enough dead people buried in this region. Great. They didn't build cities either, so you don't know where they're all buried, is what I say. You don't know where all the bodies are in a whole desert. I want you to realize their figures are built on human logic. There's no way two million people can be sustained in the desert unless God sends a daily miracle and feeds them. There's not enough water for everyone. Unless God makes water come out of rocks, you're right. And, and this is what people are struggling with, and I want us to see something, because in numbers we get bogged down in numbers, and what we miss is that every single minute of their existence was a miracle. That all the pushback against it was because we can't logically figure it out. But that's not God's problem. He's divine, and he provided for his people as they walk through. There's another reason why I think it's almost, and I'm careful when I say this, that Satan uses this hesitation for his benefit. Genesis 2-2, God promises Abram, and I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. I think to Jacob he says that his, his children, his offspring, would be as the sand of the sea, stars in the sky. And so the patriarchs all have these promises to them about how, many, how big Israel would become. And I'm going to throw something out. At two million, and I put it in mind with an exclamation point, God is fulfilling his promise. At two million, they are a what? Great nation. At 6,000, not so much. But 2 million? That's a lot of people. And I want you to see that, that what we encounter here, as we look at this first round of numbering, we're all the way to 46 here, and a lot of numbers, a lot of names, and I just want you to, to grapple with them, walk through them, see those counts, is that God has fulfilled his promise. He has made them a great nation. They are a mighty people. They are his people, fed by him, and no one else could do it. Nature could not take care of Israel. Egypt could not take care of, uh, of Israel. No one could take care of Israel except God. And what we don't want to miss is the fact that God took care of them. Now, at the close of this chapter, we come to the people who are not counted, and that's the Levites. And it drives us to see something because he's counting 12 tribes to do what? They're prepared for war, right? They're going to go into battle. They're going to engage the enemy in physical, violent conflict. And then we come to the Levites, which if you're here and you're thinking about the Levites, you think to yourself, well, why aren't they numbered? Why don't they get counted here? 
what's taking place. And here's what's interesting. They're not counted to go forth in war. Instead, they were dedicated to the preparation for worship. And there's a distinction that takes place, and God lists it. So if you look at verse 47, But the Levites, after the tribe of their fathers, were not numbered among them. Now, I want you to understand this. By the time you get to chapter 3 and 4, they are numbered. They're not numbered the same way. They're numbered 30 to 50 in chapter 4. They're numbered one month up till the end in chapter 3 for two different distinct purposes. What we see in this last portion of chapter 1, 47 to 54, is a summary of what's going to take place and be explained in chapters 3 and 4. And I'm going to highlight the, diff- the one thing in 3 that I want us to see, and that's the redemption of firstborn. And then 4, we're just going into splitting up the tasks and who and what and why. But if you look at this, I'm going to read through it. For the, for the Lord had spoken unto Moses, Moses, saying, Only thou shalt not number the tribe of Levi, neither take the sum of them among the children of Israel. Don't count them with people going to war. But thou shalt appoint the Levites over the tabernacle of testimony and over all the vessels thereof and over all things that belong to it. They shall bear the tabernacle and all the vessels thereof and they shall minister unto it and shall encamp round about the tabernacle. In other words, they're going to carry this thing and they're going to take care of it and they're going to guard it. They're going to go around it. He continues, and when the tabernacle setteth forward, the Levites shall take it down. And when the tabernacle is to be pitched, put up, the Levites shall set it up. And the stranger that cometh nigh shall be put to death. Is that not an interesting phrase right there? Out of all the things. They're going to take down the tabernacle and they'll put up the tabernacle. They're going to guard the tabernacle. They're going to camp around the tabernacle. And if someone else gets close to it, they're going to kill them. Now, if you're reading that, you should be thinking to yourself, huh, that's weird. From pick up and set up to pitching the tent to taking down the tent to where they're going to camp around the tabernacle. And now God has just given the Levites permission to kill. And by the way, the stranger is anyone who's not a Levite. That is Israel. If Israel, the ones number for war, approach the tabernacle in a time and place when they should not, what measure should the Levites go to? They should kill them. To execute them, that their death is less drastic than them defiling the tabernacle. It goes on, and he says there, The children of Israel shall pitch their tents, every man by his own camp, and every man by his own standard, throughout their hosts. And that's what we see in chapter 2, is where does Israel camp, and where do they stay? And it's going to come up. It's going to, so this is the summary portion of 1 through 4. This is telling you the Levites and building a picture here. But the Levites shall pitch round about the tabernacle of testimony, and, and if you highlight, 51 at the end is worth highlighting, and this is another portion here, that there be no wrath upon the congregation of the children of Israel, and the Levites shall keep the charge of the tabernacle of testimony. And the children of Israel did according to all that the Lord commanded Moses, so did they. And what you start seeing is obedience, which is not their usual what they do, but this is where they're obeying. And I want us to see something. We're preparing to enter the promised land. We're preparing for war. And then right in the middle of that preparation, God says, but this group of people is not preparing for war. That in the middle of fixating on the goal that he's given them, conquest, that conquest, even though commanded by a holy God, is not the only responsibility of a people who has the holy God in their presence. That worship and his holiness and his presence take priority over war. 
They have the responsibility of the tabernacle. They minister unto it, and they are called to guard it. When it says minister unto the tabernacle, that's serve Aaron at the tabernacle. There's a reason why the Kelethites later on rebel against Aaron and rebel and say, I want your role, I want this, because they graded under the authority, because their job was to serve the high priest, to make sure that everything related to the worship of God was moved, carried. It is the least glorious work, so to speak, right? It is the chair moving of the Old Testament. Pick up this brass holder that holds this pole and walk with it. And when we're done walking, set it down in the same place it would go every single time. There was an indication that every one of those people had an article that they carried so nothing would be lost. If you're the four Kohathites, or how many it took to carry the ark, you carried the ark. That's what you did. Aaron... And the high priest would have rule over who did what and would organize it. But if you got to the Merari, the family Merari, Merarathites, and I'm mispronouncing, I'm sure again, their job was to pick up poles and couplings. And they carried them. And that was their job. But they were to handle the movement and setup of the tabernacle. And then, more critical than that, they're to prevent sacrilege. (laughs) Defilement of the tabernacle by the people. And by doing that, They prevented the wrath of God coming upon the people if they were to defile the tabernacle. And I want us to kind of dive into this from moving the most sacred to the most mundane. They are given charge that if another Israelite came close, they are to kill him. Now, another question. Is the severity of that surprising, strange, or puzzling to you? Does it seem odd that they were to kill Israelites if they got close to the tabernacle? Or does that feel super normal to everyone? Yeah. They got burned up by offering unauthorized fire, right? What does it tell us? If, if death is better than defilement, what is that implying? the law that's there, but what is it? It's, it's, it's tied to even something bigger than that, right? God's presence at the tabernacle, His holiness, and defilement would mean what? What happens when you defile the tabernacle? You die, but who else gets... What, what are they preventing here? That the wrath of God against the what? The nation. And that's something we want to pick up on. God is basically saying that if an Israelite breaks through and gets in the tabernacle and defiles it, that he will judge not just that person, but the whole nation. And so they're to kill the one to prevent defilement of all the people. And, I, and we talked about this. When everyone is going to war, then everyone faces the pain of defilement. It's not just the one guy. Yeah, I don't care what you do. Just do what you do. We'll see what God does to you. We'll strike you dead. That's fine. He'll take care of it. God will take care of his business. Do you see the disposition that changes? Oh, Bob wants to come in. Well, you do what you do, man. That's your risk. What are you, you, you before God. No, that's not how that was viewed in a camp where God's presence was and his holiness dwelled. And I want us to see something here. How serious are we to take the holiness of God? And then how serious do we take the holiness of God? I think, I, I look at my own life and how I answer some things, and, and sometimes I'll say, that, yeah, well, you know, 
I don't think they're right, but, you know, they're going to answer to God. Right? The hands, we do this, right? And I'm not saying we're going to go do battle with every single person that comes in front of us, but I do want you to realize we will defend ourselves very quickly and take offense at what someone does against the name of our family, against the name of who we are, against our reputation, and how cavalier are we with the holiness of God? How lackadaisical are we about that in our society? Oh, I'd hate to step on that person's toes. How about you'd hate to step on the toes of the holiness of God? How about the standard not being how offensive we may be to someone else? And again, I, you know this, I've said it a thousand times, I'm not for an obstinate, obnoxious presentation of the gospel. It's truth and love, and, and we know that. However, it is truth, and it is love. It is not just love, and it's not just truth, but I think we err on the side of let anything go as long as it doesn't really get into my world. And here in Israel, we're seeing something very different than that. And I wrote in my notes here, um, what is it teaching us? We don't set God's standard of holiness and defilement, so we surely cannot set the exceptions to it. I don't have the right to tell you it's okay that you do what you do because that's how you grew up. That's how you feel about it. It's really important to you. I don't have the right as a believer to turn to you and say, you know, that is okay. That is fine. I don't have that right. Guess who else doesn't have that right? You don't either. And what we see in Israel in this moment, as we're looking at this count, we're seeing what the Levites have to do, is that they would kill someone before they defiled the tabernacle because you don't budge on God's standard. What we find today in most churches, is they'll budge on God's standard, but they will not budge on their own. I've seen church after church do this over and over again. They buckle to whatever standard they have set. Uh, I've seen it in, when I say ultra-legalistic churches, I've watched it unfold during COVID and the whole uh, movement that took place, the racism movement that took place. I've seen it across the board, and I'm watching churches make a decision that is their standard, and they'll negate God's. I've used this example before. I still remember um, this, there's a church in D.C. It's, it's, it's from a group of people I actually read. They usually do a great job with stuff. And they were critiquing churches being open on Sunday because they dare to defy the law of the land and gather and worship. And these people literally broke the laws of D.C. and marched in a protest on Sunday and had the audacity to go after another church, other churches, for meeting to worship on Sunday. And then when confronted with it, had the double audacity to defend themselves. That person, part of that church, I wouldn't touch their stuff. Garbage. It would take a long time before I'd ever listen to a word that comes out of their mouth. Why? They bent God's standard to their own. Now, nice to pick on somebody else, isn't it? A church in D.C. Of course a church in D.C. does that, right? But a church in Culpeper, would that ever do that? Would we dare to bend God's standard and keep our own? And I want us to be confronted with the idea here, not that God is severe, but that we recognize whose standard we're supposed to keep. 
And it's surely not necessarily ours, our own pet thing, but instead it's supposed to be God's standard. That's when it reaches street level. When we understand the realness of God's holiness and God's presence. We've taken it for granted. They most definitely could not take it for granted. Now, these verses transition us uh, to the layout of the camp around the tabernacle. And I'm going to kind of move through this in, in a quick way, um, just so you understand it, uh, north, south, east, west. East being prime location. So think of the box. You've seen it, right? You see it on your little drawing, your little map. There's a box and everything's squared out in a T formation. Well, to the right or the, or the east is the priest, and then there's going to be Judah, Issachar, and Zebulon. Why is Judah listed first? Is there a reason? Did God do that on purpose? Potentially. Of what tribe did Jesus Christ come from? Judah. Who predicted under the Holy Spirit's guidance that Judah would lead out of all his sons? Jacob. And so what we see is the fulfillment of that. And tied to it is Issachar and Zebulon, which when you think about the tribes, Issachar had a lot of times leaders. Zebulon, there's a connection. But they were related by the same mom. Then you go over to Reuben, Gad, and Simeon. And Reuben would have been the firstborn, should have had this possibility, but he wasted it in in his life, and so did Simeon and Levi, actually, uh, in that option. And next to them were the the, the tribe or the family of Koath, the ones that would be second highest on the Levitical chart, if you want to call it that. Out of Koath came Aaron and Moses, and they were the high priests. Thus, these guys having a battle later on in Numbers. And that's Reuben, Simeon, Gad. You loop around to the west side, and here is the, uh, the family of Gershon would have been the ones doing this. And that's Manassas, Ephraim, and Benjamin. And as we mentioned last week, they're siblings, Rachel's children right there. Oh, someone started it. It's not me, is it? Hi, right, Logan. What are you trying to say? I don't know how to read this right now. He just, bam, he hit that. He said, Kenny needs to be quiet. We're going to have someone else talk. I knew it was something. Here's an easier way. You could throw something at me. Whatever you want to do would have been the easier solution. I hate it. I'm going to play it from the back there. You get, that's all right. We understand that. We'll let it go. Just one time. We'll let it slide. Just <laughs> then you go to the, 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 the north side. You got Asher, Dan, and Naphtali, and that's Merari. The, the family of Merari would have to pick up the poles and pick up the couplings job. And what we have is they're all positioned for a reason around them with the Levites surrounding the tabernacle. And then we're going to move to chapters 3 and 4, and we're going to come to the Levites for service, and we're going to look at a total number first in chapter 3. And we're going to get to this number of 22,000, and then they're going to say of the firstborn of the nation of Israel, there's 22,273. And so you have 22,000 and 22,273, and most people think that the 22,273 firstborn were those born to that nation in that year. So when you think about the number of people, because if it's just 22,273 out of 2 million people, that's saying that most of the people had about 27 sons. One out of 27 was a firstborn, which would be quite a lot of kids for everyone to have. And that means there's quite a lot of wives for everyone to have, for there only be 
One firstborn counted from the first wife. And so if you go into polygamy and you wander through all that mess that's there, that's how they would get to the number. Or, which makes more sense to me, they are rescued out of, ex, out of Egypt, right? They come out. In the year that we've covered, 22,273 firstborns, and God is saying, I'm taking Levi over the firstborns. But there's a discrepancy, right? 273. Now, most of us say, pretty close, right? God's going to let that slide. Nope. Got to pay. You have to redeem them. And, and I like when I see that, because when I first read it, I thought, man, it's 273. <laughs> big deal. What's the big deal? Right? That's a big deal. Because God is taking Levi instead of the firstborn. And so they redeem all of them that were firstborn from there. And then we're given a recount of Nadab and Abihu and their unauthorized fire leading to who would serve as high priest with their father Aaron, Eliezer, and Ithamar. And I, I find fascinating the one narrative in Leviticus is repeated in Numbers, and why would they do that? And Bob probably already answered that question, right? What happens when you spurn what God has to say? You're done. What seems harsh, what did Aaron, if you remember the story, could Aaron grieve his son's death? No. He would have dishonored God. Could his brothers mourn their brother's death? Nope. Been consecrated as high priest. He had the nation mourn him, but they could not. And we're reminded again, God takes his holiness and his commands and his worship very seriously. Then chapter 3, as I mentioned, the count and the redemption. And then in chapter 4, we get a separate count, and we count those who are serving actively. And then notice the number's not the same. as 30-year-olds to 50-year-olds, basically broken down by the three families who will then get their three different responsibilities. I want us to see something as we're diving into the book of Numbers, and we just covered a huge chunk of why it's called Numbers. Numbers 1 through 4 is how the Greeks came up with the name Numbers, why the Latins kept doing it, why we in English keep doing it. We don't go with the Hebrew name. We go with what the Greek has done, Numbers. Because there's a lot of counting in there. And in chapter 26, you're going to see the count done again as they're getting ready to enter the promised land after everyone dies in the wilderness. But what I want us to understand is God is preparing them for war and God is preparing them for worship. And that God had set apart a portion of the nation, or the majority of it, to go into war and conquer the land. And that in that preparation, everyone was to be involved. Everyone. And then we go over to the Levites and their responsibilities. And we understand that God is not casual about his holiness, his presence, and his worship. That God has set a standard that we don't have any, any excuse to bend on. And so here's the two things I hope we can take away from a street level walking through. I want us to understand what's taking place. We know how many people can fight. We know how many people can serve at the tabernacle. We know what they're supposed to do and where they're supposed to camp. We know what they're going to do and how they're going to camp and how they're going to lead and how they're going to walk. As you read through it in 3 and 4, in one of those chapters, you're going to get where it's amazing. We're going to send the pole holders first, and they're going to be able to put the couplings down and put the poles in. And then the next ones are going to come with the covering of the tabernacle. And the Levites are going to be mixed through the whole camp. As they march and as they get to camp, because you can imagine if you're moving two million people, someone gets to camp a lot earlier than somebody else. 
But somebody also leaves camp a lot earlier than somebody else. And so everything is orchestrated. There's God's organization is, is permeates it, his perfection, his thought. But what I want us to take away from a street-level thing is that everyone was participatory, that this was not something that a few people did and everyone else watched and clapped, but instead was something that everyone is involved in and engaged in. There's the everyone part. And then there is the seriousness part. God is serious about his holiness. Are you? God has commanded, not suggested, everyone to serve. Same question. Are you? As we stand here with a closing are you question, are you serious about God's holiness and his standard? His standard, not ours. Not caught up in and what we do and what we find critically important. And trust me, I don't even want to give out the illustrations because some of them are so ridiculous, it'll blow your mind. But some of them might step on your toes because it might be your standard. And you think, wait a second, God would definitely have my standard. Which, by the way, that's pharisaical. That's what the Pharisees did. Are you as serious about God's holiness as God is? Are you as serious about God's worship as God is? Are you as serious about God's standard as God is, as he's instructed us. And then here, are you serving as God commanded? Who serves? What is it? Everyone. Everyone is engaged in serving.